0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify
1: soon. It was early December 1977, around midnight, and George Purvis was scared as hell. Standing in the pilot house of a shrimping boat called the Two Bears, he was looking for a big Colombian trawler off the coast of North Carolina. It was carrying 22,000 pounds of premium Colombian marijuana. A second boat, a large yacht called the Osprey, was somewhere nearby, waiting to start offloading.
2: This was Purvis's first real test since joining the Black Tuna Gang. Run by Bobby Platchhorn and Robbie Meinster, the gang was one of the biggest marijuana smuggling operations in South Florida. If everything went smoothly tonight, it promised to be a big payday. And more importantly, Purvis knew he'd earn the trust and respect of Bobby and Robbie.
1: On his radar screen, Purvis finally spotted the Colombian trawler. He radioed to the ship using a prearranged call sign Pescados Grandes, Big Fish. The trawler captain responded with the same phrase, and Purvis knew he'd found the right vessel. He called the Osprey to tell its captain it was safe to approach. The captain, Wade Bailey, moved in to tie up alongside the trawler.
2: Aboard the two bears, George Purvis watched the unloading begin. Once the Osprey was finished, Bailey had instructions to take it to a stash house about 25 miles inland, up the Cape Fear and Brunswick rivers. Leaving Bailey to his work, Purvis turned his shrimp boat around and headed back towards the North Carolina coast. He felt a giddy sense of relief. He would see that everything was ready at the stash house and then head back to the hotel in Wilmington. He should get there just in time for some well-deserved breakfast.
1: What Purvis didn't know, and what would surely have ruined his appetite if he had, is that Wade Bailey, the captain of the Osprey, was working for the other team.
2: I'm Howell Hargett.
1: And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpin's a Parcast Original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld.
2: And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, We'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find all episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar.
1: This is our second episode on Robert Plattshorn and the Black Tuna Gang. A marijuana smuggling organization that was based out of Miami in the late 1970s. Last week, we saw how Bobby and his best friend Robbie Meinster got into the smuggling business. They turned a side hustle into a multi-million dollar marijuana smuggling and distribution operation.
2: This week we'll explore how everything came crashing down, leading Platchhorn to become the longest-serving non-violent marijuana offender in history.
1: In the events that follow, there are several discrepancies in dates and years between the official government indictments and the stories told by Robert Platchorn and the other figures involved. In this episode, we've gone with the dates provided in official sources.
2: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us.
2: By the middle of 1977, the Black Tuna Gang was at the top of its game. They'd already earned millions since starting out moving small amounts of pot in Pennsylvania in 1974. Now they were among the biggest marijuana smugglers in the country and by some accounts, the gang was bringing in as much as half a million dollars a week.
1: They had a fleet of yachts and private planes at their disposal, and they used vans with sophisticated radio equipment to eavesdrop on law enforcement. According to some reports, they had as many as 60 employees and associates, including boat crews, security men, and pilots. They also had a number of legitimate businesses, some of which they used as a front for laundering their drug money. Among them was a barber shop, a marina, and the South Florida auto auction, Bobby's used car dealership.
2: At the top of the food chain, Bobby and Robbie lived like kings, Both had mansions in Miami, and their wives spent their weeks collecting jewelry, artwork, and antiques.
1: They also both had a cocaine problem. Though they only dealt professionally in marijuana, they bought Coke by the kilo for personal use. Spending as much as $50,000 a week on the drug, they used it to entertain friends and guests at lavish parties at their homes and aboard their yachts. Their own drug use never seems to have interfered with their ability to run their business. But in the coming months, the drug habits of their employees would cause increasing problems in their operations.
2: they have been using an oceanfront presidential suite in the Fontainebleau Hotel on Miami Beach as their base of operations. It was a posh two-story suite where they wine, dined, and supplied cocaine to their clientele at all hours of the day and night.
1: But as their organization grew larger, they felt uncomfortably exposed in the Fontainebleau. So they bought a luxurious houseboat called the Beams Post Time and outfitted it for doing business and partying. They moored it right alongside the hotel and even had phone lines connected to the boat by routing them through the Fontainebleau's switchboard.
2: They knew they couldn't keep going in the marijuana business forever. But for now, they had a lifestyle to maintain. And once they got their legal businesses up and running, they could leave the smuggling life for good.
1: At least, that's the story they would tell later. At the time, there was no evidence to suggest they were actually making any effort to get out of drug smuggling. Government records indicate, in fact, that they were intending to branch out into other popular drugs including cocaine and quaaludes.
2: They discussed expanding into the West Coast market as well. Their partner, Big Gene Myers, had a cousin in Las Vegas who went by the name of Scratch. Scratch was a professional gambler who wanted in on the marijuana business. Bobby and Robbie sold him a couple of bales of their Santa Marta gold to get him started. Then, in the summer of 1977, they flew out to Vegas to meet with him and his local connections.
1: Scratch met them at Caesar's Palace, where he'd arranged for them to stay indefinitely. Greeting them in the lobby, he said, Sorry I couldn't meet you at the airport. I had some business to take care of for Frank.
2: Scratch, it turned out, was part of Frank Sinatra's entourage, and he had an idea for how Bobby and Robbie could get set up on the West Coast. He introduced them to a number of associates who were interested in getting into the smuggling business. They were men in dark suits with names like Sal, Tony, and Vinny. Bobby would later state, Scratch was trying to pimp us to the mob.
1: A few years later, the government would accuse the Black Tuna Gang of conspiring with mobsters to distribute more drugs. But Bobby has since played down the incident, arguing that it never came to anything and that it wasn't their idea in the first place.
2: In any case, when the talks with the mobsters fizzled out, Scratch had another idea to lure the black tunas into the West Coast market. It involved the affluent and growing community of Rancho Mirage near Palm Springs, California, about a four-hour drive from Las Vegas. Frank Sinatra and a number of other well-connected and high-profile figures lived in the area. Scratch knew a guy who could get property for them nearby.
1: The idea was to buy up a number of contiguous lots and build a private cabana and swim club. They could cater to the local wealth and ultimately sell their new clientele high-end weed. Through his connections in Las Vegas, Scratch promised to get several of the big casinos involved. They'd expressed interest in leasing a few such cabanas for their high rollers who wanted to visit Palm Springs.
2: It seemed like a perfect opportunity. Scratch took them out to Rancho Mirage and showed them the property, 10 neighboring lots that would be perfect for a high-end club. They also visited the Palm Springs Airport, which was on Native American land and controlled by the Agua Caliente tribe. Scratch assured Bobby and Robbie that with the right amount of money, they could land a plane on the runway, unload its cargo, and have no problem from the local authorities.
1: In the end, the opportunity was too good to pass up. Bobby put down $10,000 to secure the lots in Rancho Mirage, and Scratch assured them that Frank Sinatra would be their first club member when the cabanas were finished.
2: They also gave Scratch $200,000 to purchase an old Lockheed Constellation transport plane. The Connie, as it was called, was an old workhorse of the 1940s and 50s. It had four engines and a big enough cargo capacity to haul more than 20,000 pounds of marijuana in a single trip. It would be the perfect plane to supply their future buyers on the West Coast.
1: After returning home to Miami, they waited for a call from Scratch confirming the purchase of the Connie. After two weeks and numerous unanswered calls at Scratch's home number, they began to get worried.
2: Finally, in the middle of the night, Scratch showed up at Bobby's door, disheveled and looking like he hadn't slept in a week. Big Jean was staying at Bobby's house at the time, and Scratch sat down and told the pair what had happened.
1: It turns out that after Robbie and Bobby left, Scratch was informed by one of his contacts that local law enforcement had gotten wind of their plans to buy the plane and use it for drug smuggling. They were planning on picking Scratch up when he came to make the purchase. He took the money and fled, riding buses all the way to Miami with the briefcase clutched tightly to his side.
2: That was all well and good, but when Bobby opened the suitcase there was only 50,000 of the original 200,000 left in it. Scratch, it turns out, had tried to salvage the situation by purchasing a brothel. Sex work was legal in Nevada, and Scratch had bought one of the well-known ranches with the Black Tuna Gang's money. It even had its own landing strip where they could conceivably offload planes of marijuana.
1: Bobby and Big Gene were flabbergasted and angry. They had no desire to be in that business and running a drug smuggling operation anywhere within 50 miles of a brothel was a surefire way to end up in a Nevada prison. Scratch eventually left, promising to get their money back.
2: Bobby never saw or heard from Scratch again and this horrid miscommunication signaled the beginning of the end for his operation.
1: Coming up, We'll explore how drug use and internal divisions spelled the beginning of the end for the Black Tuna Gang.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
1: Now back to the story.
0: In mid-1977, the
2: Black Tuna Gang had experienced their first few missteps. The proposed California expansion had gone belly up when their client Scratch was fingered by law enforcement. However, officials were still no closer to catching Bobby Platchorn or Robbie Meinster, who cut ties with Scratch and went back to business as usual, smuggling marijuana into Florida.
1: Following several successful smuggling operations with stash houses in Miami, they decided it would be smart to change their normal routine. Instead of offloading in Miami, they would take a shipment up to New Jersey. It would confuse law enforcement and it would please their clients in the Northeast, who would be able to avoid the risky truck transportation from Miami.
2: In addition to changing locations, they also decided to just use one yacht for offloading instead of two. Through their associate Mark Phillips, they purchased a huge yacht, a 104-footer called the Senator. For backup, they brought along a second, slightly smaller yacht called Nature's Way. One of Robbie's friends in New Jersey offered to let them use his marina for offloading.
1: The plan was a disaster almost from the start. When Bobby and Robbie arrived in New Jersey to inspect the marina, they discovered it was much too small to dock their huge yacht. The water was so shallow, the boats wouldn't even be able to enter the marina, much less dock there. With both yachts already heading for New Jersey, Bobby and Robbie had to find a new place quickly. They decided to look for a stash house like the ones they'd used in Miami.
2: In the end, one of Bobby's old pitchmen friends arranged for them to use the dock at an unoccupied fishing club that had gone bankrupt. They paid the caretaker and his family to take a two-week vacation and arranged to have the senator unload its cargo there. In order to rent the place, they told the realtor they were filming a movie about drug smugglers starring Robert Redford.
1: They disguised their communications van as a film crew truck, complete with a logo of a fake movie studio. They used it to deliver rented soundstage equipment to the fishing club, They set up lights, boom mics, reflectors, and even a real movie camera along the docks to complete the scam.
2: It all ended up being a big waste of time and money. The morning after the transfer was supposed to take place at sea, Bobby woke up hoping to hear from the senator that it was loaded and inbound for the fishing club. Instead, he got a call from his supplier in Columbia The trawler with the weed on board had spotted the senator, but the senator had mysteriously fled after the trawler had made contact. He was sending his ship back south toward Florida and suggested rendezvousing in their normal location
1: near the Bahamas. Bobby was dumbfounded, but didn't have time to be upset. He had to move the entire operation back to Miami and figure out a way to get his yachts to the Bahamas. He quickly realized that would be impossible. The yachts were so big and slow, they'd never be able to catch up to the trawler. The Colombians promised to wait in the Bahamas for no more than 24 hours. There just wasn't enough time.
2: So Bobby arranged with Big Jean, who was monitoring the mission from Miami, to have two more yachts dispatched to meet the trawler. In the end, only one of Big Jean's yachts managed to reach the Colombian ship. As a result, they were only able to get about half the load. The Colombians, who by that time had been at sea for a month, threw the rest overboard and headed home.
1: It was a disappointing end to a disastrous endeavor. It didn't help when Bobby found out the reason the senator didn't rendezvous with the Colombians as planned. After the yacht returned safely to the marina in New Jersey, Bobby learned that the captain and crew, coked up and paranoid, had convinced themselves that the trawler was a disguised Coast Guard ship.
2: After having spent a serious amount of time and money in both New Jersey and Miami, Bobby and Robbie ultimately made very little from the 16,000 pounds of weed they'd taken from the trawler both their buyers and the Colombians were upset. They knew they needed to save face as quickly as possible.
1: So they contacted Mark Phillips again and bought another yacht, even bigger than the Senator. It was a 110-footer aptly named the Presidential. The Colombians agreed to send another load of 35,000 pounds to the Bahamas around Labor Day of 1977.
2: Big Jean and several Black Tuna employees were monitoring the mission from the gang's high-tech communications van in Fort Lauderdale. Word came down that the transfer went off without a hitch, but bad weather forecast for the presidential's trip back home troubled Bobby as he went to sleep that
1: night. When the phone woke Bobby up before dawn, he felt a knot in his gut. His fear hadn't been misplaced It was Big Gene on the phone, telling him that he'd lost radio contact with the yacht and hadn't been able to reach them for an hour. But before losing touch, they told him they were taking on water and were trying to get their bilge pumps working.
2: Bobby looked at his watch. He could go buy spare pumps, load them on a helicopter, and deliver them out to the yacht, assuming he could find it out on the ocean, But it was still three hours until any marine supply stores opened. He told Big Gene to keep trying to reach the boat. In the meantime, he started making phone calls to arrange a rescue mission.
1: Robbie agreed to handle business at the auto auction, while Big Gene continued to monitor law enforcement channels from the communications van. If the boat was stranded somewhere, it was vital that they reach it before the Coast Guard. At 8 o'clock sharp, Bobby walked into Sears and purchased bilge pumps, then delivered them out to the airport where an associate was arranging for a helicopter. Bobby would use his own plane to begin searching for the yacht himself.
2: Throughout the afternoon, Bobby flew search patterns around the region where the yacht was supposed to have been, but he couldn't locate it. His anxiety and frustration continued to grow when Big Gene reported that he still couldn't raise the presidential on the radio. It was becoming apparent that the yacht had either sunk or was dead in the water somewhere.
1: Rain and fog forced Bobby to call the search off and wait another day before starting out again. The only good news was that Big Gene reported all was normal on law enforcement channels. Neither the Coast Guard Nor the Bahamian authorities seemed to know anything about a drug-laden yacht.
2: The next day, the helicopter finally located the presidential. The two spare bilge pumps weren't going to do the yacht any good. It was beached on its side in a quiet cove on Great Abaco Island. There didn't appear to be any activity either on the yacht or the beach around it. Bobby immediately hopped in his plane and flew out there himself.
1: He flew over the cove at low altitude several times. One of the yacht's crew members recognized his plane and stepped out of the dense mangroves at the edge of the beach, waving at him. Using a tube of lipstick that his wife had left in the plane, Bobby wrote a message on his window promising to return with a boat.
2: It took another 24 hours, But the gang eventually rescued the crew of the presidential. They'd been hiding out in the muddy swamps and mangroves for two days without food or fresh water. Despite being muddy and thirsty, they were otherwise unharmed. The captain reported that when the ship began to take on water during the storm three nights earlier, they'd been unable to get the bilge pumps working. Fearing the yacht would sink, he decided to beach it in a hidden cove hoping the load could be salvaged there.
1: But as more details began to emerge in private conversations with the crewmen, it became apparent that the pumps had been just fine. Instead, the crewman who'd been sent down to turn the pumps on was so high, he passed out in the engine room before finishing the job. By the time another crewman came down to look for him, it was too late.
2: In any case, they weren't out of the woods yet. The captain assured Bobby and the others that they hadn't seen anyone snooping around the yacht. It would be safe to salvage at least some of the marijuana. So the gang's rescue boat, a yacht called The Fishing Fool, returned to the beach and sent a dinghy out to begin offloading. Bobby was monitoring the situation overhead in his plane.
1: Here is where some contemporary newspaper accounts and the story told by Bobby many years later diverge. Bobby tells a swashbuckling tale of two dozen Bahamian Marines jumping out from behind sand dunes and opening fire on the rescue boat and its crew. In this account, Bobby swept down upon the Bahamians in his plane, like a kamikaze fighter pilot to scare them off. They turned their machine guns on him before retreating back into the woods.
2: Official accounts tell it differently. There were only four Marines, not dozens, and there is no mention of gunfire or Bobby flying overhead. Whatever happened, once he retreated back to a marina on nearby Chubb Key with the presidential's crew, Bobby got a call from Big Gene, who was still monitoring things from Port Lauderdale. He told Bobby that the Bahamian Marines and police, as well as U.S. Customs and the DEA, were all looking for the smugglers who had just escaped. Meanwhile, gang members Mark Phillips and George Purvis were on their way from North Carolina in another yacht, still intending to unload the presidential. They didn't know that the authorities had taken control of it.
1: Bobby knew that Phillips and Purvis would stop at nearby Walker's Key to refuel before heading on to where the presidential was beached. So he dispatched a pilot with a message telling them to stand down. The pilot took Bobby's plane and left immediately. He managed to get the message to Purvis, but on his way home, he was stopped by authorities and arrested. The plane was searched thoroughly but since there were no bullet holes or any illegal drugs on board, they couldn't prove it was the same plane that had buzzed the presidential.
2: With Bobby's plane grounded on another island, Bobby now had no way to get home with the crew of the presidential. Bobby reasoned that the rescue boat, the fishing fool, couldn't safely take them because authorities were looking for the presidential's missing crew. The fishing fool was sent back without Bobby or the crew and upon its arrival in Miami, US Customs inspected the boat inside and out.
1: Meanwhile, Bahamian authorities were busy scouring Tiny Chub Key, looking for the presidential's crew. Bobby and the others hid in a sweltering garage underneath an upturned fishing boat while Marines searched the area. Once the coast was clear, Bobby had to pay a hefty bribe to the dockmaster for keeping the searchers away from their hiding place.
2: Now $10,000 poorer, Bobby still had to figure out how to get home. There was little doubt that the authorities would be back again tomorrow. The simplest solution was for Big Gene, who was a licensed pilot, to fly in during the night and pick them up. To Bobby's great surprise and irritation, Big Gene refused. He claimed there'd be no landing lights at the airstrip and said he didn't have keys to the hangar where the planes were kept.
1: Bobby was now desperate and angry. He'd have to figure something out on his own. With the help of some local friends, he got his hands on a small plane that was parked at the airport. It was owned by a wealthy businessman whose pilot conveniently lived on the island. Bobby paid the pilot $5,000 to give him the keys with a promise to leave it at the Fort Lauderdale airport.
2: Bobby and the crew of the presidential left Chubb Key before dawn and made it safely back to Florida. They passed without any issue through customs, telling the officers a story about a fishing trip that had ended with them getting robbed. That explained their bedraggled appearance and lack of wallets or IDs. The agents bought it, and let them pass through unquestioned.
1: They'd managed to get home safely without getting arrested, but the fallout from the disastrous mission was only just beginning. As with the failed transfer in New Jersey a few months earlier, drug use among black tuna crewmen had led to this second failed expedition. And this one had resulted in a beached ship with 35,000 pounds of weed on board.
2: Authorities eventually counted 745 bales of marijuana on the presidential. After all the accounts were tallied up, the Black Tuna Gang lost a million dollars in the debacle. It also led to a split between Big Gene and the others. Big Gene had been running the mission and Bobby was only supposed to have been peripherally involved. In the end, Gene had refused to leave his communications van and Bobby had been the one who'd risked his neck, rescuing the crew. When Big Gene had been unwilling to fly them out of Chub Key, that had been the last straw. Following the disaster, Bobby and Robbie, more or less, cut ties with Big Gene.
1: As Bobby and Robbie struggled to recover from this dramatic setback, Authorities found something else of interest in the presidential. It was a stack of papers relating to a business called the Green Turtle Construction Company. Furthermore, the yacht itself was registered in the name of Roger Culpepper.
2: Authorities knew absolutely nothing about Green Turtle or Roger Culpepper, but luckily for them, someone from within the gang would soon be willing to tell them everything they wanted to know. His name was George Purvis.
1: Coming up, we'll see how the government finally closed in on the Black Tuna Gang with help from informants and an investigation called Operation Banco. Now back to the story.
2: In the fall of 1977, Law enforcement was getting dangerously close to disrupting the Black Tuna Gang's operations. Bobby Platchhorn and Robbie Meinster had lost an entire load of marijuana when their drug-addled associates failed to make the shipment.
1: The debacle with the presidential didn't sit well with Bobby and Robbie. They'd come way too close to being caught, and they were starting to have more failures than successes. It was time to get on the right side of the law, before it was too late.
2: They began to pass the torch on to other gang members, people like George Purvis. Bobby and Robbie still fronted money and offered assistance, but let others lead the operations.
1: That's how Purvis found himself at the helm of the Two Bears in December of 1977, overseeing the transfer of 22,000 pounds of pot from the Colombians. What he didn't know was that Wade Bailey, the boat captain he'd hired for the job, was working for the government.
2: After seeing Bailey begin the transfer, Purvis went back to the hotel in Wilmington, North Carolina. There, he could relax and celebrate a successful mission with Robbie, who was monitoring law enforcement from the hotel. Later that morning, When Bailey guided his loaded vessel into North Carolina's Brunswick River for offloading, customs agents were there waiting to seize the cargo. No high-level members of the Black Tunas were there when the raid went down, but one of their employees was there, waiting in a rental truck for a load of marijuana. He was arrested and soon began to give information to local authorities.
1: When investigators found out that gang members were monitoring law enforcement from a hotel room in Wilmington, they immediately dispatched officers to the suite. When the officers got there, they found the room empty. Robbie, Purvis, and the others were long gone. Upon hearing about the raid, they'd immediately fled, buying plane tickets back to Florida. The failure of the North Carolina operation coming on the heels of the disastrous presidential fiasco, convinced Bobby and Robbie that it was time to put an end to their smuggling work for good. There were already people in custody who could lead authorities to them. It was time to go on the straight and narrow.
2: But either the lure of easy money or a sense of obligation to friends kept Bobby from severing ties completely. As 1978 rolled around, he was still working with George Purvis, helping him get established in the smuggling business.
1: In January of 1978, Purvis was on a plane, which was landing on the Colombian airstrip where Bobby had nearly been executed by a greedy military officer 18 months earlier. The plane had been modified illegally with extra fuel tanks so it could travel longer distances.
2: While approaching the secluded landing strip, the pilot lost control of the plane. It crash-landed in the jungle, losing both its wings and leaving a mile-long trail of debris. Purvis and the pilots were okay, but any hope of returning with a load of marijuana was crushed. Yet another failure.
1: Upon returning to the United States, Purvis learned he'd been indicted in North Carolina for the Osprey incident two months earlier. Having hired Wade Bailey, the government's informant, himself, he was not surprised when the indictment came down. Deciding he wasn't cut out for smuggling, he went to North Carolina and turned himself in.
2: While he was being held in North Carolina, DEA agents visited him in his jail cell. After interviewing him several times, they realized he was just the person they'd been looking for, an insider of the Black Tuna Gang who was ready to come clean.
1: Purvis felt that he had gotten in over his head. Divorced and paying costly alimony payments every month, he'd originally been hoping for some adventure as well as a ready source of cash. He'd been bored working in his father's car dealership But life as a smuggler wasn't all it was cracked up to be. He was ready to get out. Going undercover for the DEA was a perfect way to extricate himself from the situation and hopefully avoid jail time.
2: After agreeing to become an informant, Purvis posted Bond and returned to Florida, where he went back to work with Bobby and Robbie at the auto auction.
1: By this time in early 1978, a joint operation between the DEA and the FBI had begun to close in on the Black Tuna Gang.
2: Back in September of 1977, not long after the presidential was beached and confiscated by the Bahamians, a man walked into a bank in Miami Beach. He had several gold chains around his neck, and his shirt was unbuttoned halfway down his chest. He was carrying a briefcase with half a million dollars in it. He deposited the money into an account called Vielmar.
1: The same man, going by the name H. Roberts, had been in just a few weeks earlier and had deposited $600,000 into the same account, all in cash. At the time, the bank teller had found the transaction highly irregular and had contacted the DEA The DEA had asked the teller to let them know the next time the man came in.
2: So, this time, agents were in place to follow Mr. Roberts after he left the bank. It took several months of sleuthing, but they eventually discovered that H. Roberts was really Harold Blumen. Blumen, they would eventually discover, handled the books for Bobby and Robbie. The account in question, Viomar had seen over $10 million in deposits in 1977.
1: Operation Banco discovered that Viamar was the pseudonym of a South American money man who helped drug lords hide money in overseas accounts. Taking a 15% commission, Viamar would hide illegal funds in offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands, Switzerland, and Panama. He also routed payments to suppliers in Colombia,
2: Operation Banco set up a surveillance crew at Howard Blumen's house. One day, a dark-haired woman in a Mercedes showed up at the house, apparently to conduct some sort of business. The woman was Lynn Platchhorn, Bobby's wife. Her car was registered to the South Florida Auto Auction.
1: At this point, agents began to connect the dots. Some months earlier, in the spring of 1977, a stash house near Miami had been raided. It was stacked ceiling high with marijuana. Several men were arrested, but they were released a few weeks later when a judge ruled the police did not have probable cause to raid the house. Among the evidence detectives had found in the house were receipts for the South Florida auto auction. Even
2: though these receipts couldn't be used in court, this was a vital clue for the detectives investigating Operation Banco. The auto auction was now connected to both the VOmar cash transactions and an incident of drug smuggling.
1: The agents ran a background check on both Bobby and Robbie. They discovered that in addition to the auto auction and several other businesses, the pair also owned the Green Turtle Construction Company.
2: This company didn't appear to be doing much actual construction business, but they did own a large piece of undeveloped property in South Florida.
1: Agents learned that Bobby and Robbie had discussed using the Green Turtle property for a marijuana-growing operation. This had been in December of 1977, right after Purvis's operation in North Carolina was broken up by authorities Bobby and Robbie had been brainstorming ideas for how to get out of the international smuggling business but remain in the marijuana game.
2: In any case, agents for Operation Banco connected another dot when they discovered that papers for the Green Turtle Construction Company had been found on board the presidential after it was searched by Bahamian officials.
1: The evidence against the Black Tuna Gang was beginning to pile up. When George Purvis agreed to become a DEA informant in February of 1978, he would help bring it all together.
2: The presidential was registered in North Carolina to someone named Roger Culpepper. Purvis would tell authorities that Roger Culpepper was an alias for Robert Platchhorn, the same man who owned the auto auction.
1: It would take another year before Operation Banco was ready to provide its evidence to a grand jury. But once they did, the jury very quickly returned indictments on Bobby, Robbie, Big Gene, and a dozen others. They were arrested in April of 1979.
2: The trial began in September of that year and George Purvis, Wade Bailey, and several others including the realtor who had leased the stash houses, testified against them. In fear for his life, Purvis eventually went into the witness protection program.
1: He wasn't the only one who heard rumors of threats against his life. In the midst of the trial, in December of 1979, the jury was sequestered so that a law enforcement official could address the judge. Bobby and Robbie, the official alleged, were plotting to disrupt the trial by killing the judge. A jailhouse informant had snitched, asserting that Bobby had told him about the plot. It allegedly involved using Bobby's mafia connections, which he'd made in Las Vegas, to handle the assassinations.
2: Bobby and the others vehemently denied the charges and they were eventually cleared, but their problems weren't over. The law enforcement official also accused them of trying to bribe jurors. In the end, one juror was removed and later charged with obstruction of justice. Bobby's wife, Lynn, was implicated in the bribery scheme and ultimately pled guilty.
1: Bobby and Robbie knew that the feds had enough dirt on them to put them in prison, but they weren't seriously worried. Their lawyers assured them that nonviolent marijuana charges wouldn't result in more than a few years. They were wrong.
2: Eight members of the Black Tuna Gang were convicted of various charges under a 1970 law, commonly called the Kingpin Statute. It had been used to convict a number of high-profile drug cartel figures over the years, including, most recently, El Chapo of the Sinaloa Cartel, Bobby and Robbie were the first marijuana smugglers to be convicted under the law.
1: In his defense, Bobby quipped, I'm not even a safety pin, let alone a kingpin. The trial judge, who had to use bodyguards throughout the trial because of the rumored threats against his life, disagreed. In court, he stated, The price for participation in this traffic should be prohibitive. It should be made too dangerous to be attractive. The judge sentenced Bobby to 64 years in prison. Robbie got 53 and Big Jean got 33. Both Robbie and Big Jean got out of prison before Bobby. Robbie retired to a quiet life on the right side of the law. Big Jean died in the early 2000s shortly after being released.
2: Mark Phillips, who supplied the gang with yachts and helped bring George Purvis into the gang, jumped bail in 1979 and remained at large for over 30 years. He was finally apprehended in 2011 and given a five-year sentence. George Purvis reportedly committed suicide in the mid-2000s, over 20 years after entering the witness protection program.
1: Bobby got the longest sentence and served the longest term. 29 years. He has stated that this is the longest prison term in U.S. history for a nonviolent marijuana offender. But he points out that others who are currently in prison may eventually surpass him. He has used the decades since his release to advocate in Florida for medical marijuana, focusing specifically on drumming up support among senior citizens.
2: And his efforts have paid off. In March of 2019, Florida finally legalized medical marijuana.
1: The Black Tuna Gang was the first big drug smuggling group to be taken down in the government's war on drugs. In the wake of the Black Tuna's demise, other smugglers learned some valuable lessons. Why fill a boat full of pungent bales of marijuana when a backpack full of unscented cocaine is cheaper easier and far more valuable.
2: A blizzard of cocaine was already moving into South Florida by the time Bobby and the Black Tunas were arrested. In the following decade, drug cartels would coat the streets of Miami in white powder and violence. As the war on drugs escalated, the cartels developed an organizational sophistication that made the exploits of the Black Tuna Gang seem quaint.
1: In the years since he has been released from prison, Bobby has argued that the federal government blew the Black Tuna Gang story out of proportion. Bobby stated that even the name, Black Tuna, was invented by the feds. They never used such a name. He also claims that the gang didn't move anywhere close to the million pounds of weed they were accused of. He says it was about one-tenth of that amount.
2: Bobby claimed that the sophisticated communications equipment the government accused them of using was nothing more than cheap Radio Shack parts. The fleet of yachts and airplanes was exaggerated, and the dozens of supposed employees were really just friends, acquaintances, and fishing buddies.
1: At the time of the investigation, the DEA had only been around for a few years and was being threatened with dissolution. Bobby and his supporters argue that the DEA needed a big sensationalized story to justify their existence. Inventing a sophisticated drug cartel and then busting it was all part of a bigger scheme to get headlines and remain relevant.
2: The DEA has always maintained that its depiction of the gang was accurate based on its evidence and informant testimony. But today, even some of the government's prosecutors admit that the black tunas were small fish compared to the cartels that came after them. John F. Brown Jr., who was part of the prosecuting team, has stated, the black tuna gang seemed more like the Keystone cops than slick masterminds.
1: Whether Bobby Platshorn and the black tuna gang were sophisticated criminal drug smugglers or stoners just trying to make money with their fishing buddies, One thing is certain, they paid a high price for their good times. For more information on Robert Platshorn, amongst the many sources we used, we found his autobiography, Black Tuna Diaries, extremely helpful to our research.
2: Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. We will be back next week with another thrilling episode.
1: You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
2: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar.
2: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Scott Christmas and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Harkett.